Thank you for tuning in to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Own It Podcast. My name is Jordan Boritsky, and today I'm very excited to be interviewing one of the best-known personalities in the Canadian broadcasting industry, Michael Landsberg. Michael has been with TSN since the network's inception. He hosted Off the Record from its debut in 1997 to its finale in 2015. He was twice nominated for the Gemini Award for Best Host or Interviewer in a Sports Program or Sports Cast. And Landsberg was a Whistler host for the Olympic Daytime on CTV during the Vancouver 2010 Olympic Winter Games and during the London 2012 Olympic Games, he anchored TSN's Olympic Daytime. Michael is an ambassador for Bell Let's Talk, an initiative raising awareness about mental health and the founder of Sick Not Weak. He has a documentary, Darkness and Hope, where, where Michael opens up about his own struggles with depression, as well as interviewing famous guests about their own battles. Enjoy the episode. Michael, before we proceed with our discussion, I want to first welcome and thank you for taking the time today to join me on the Own It podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the chance. So it works out well. You're happy. I'm happy. Perfect. Thank you. So I'd like to start off by asking you, what is mental illness and how would you describe it? Uh, well, I could talk for uh, many hours on that, um, but I'll try, to find, uh, I'll try to find a way that's a little more portable uh, and deals with what I think are the most important issues. So ask me the question uh, one at a time and I'll give you the answers. The first question was? How would you define mental illness? Uh, I would define mental illness as, uh, as being, first of all, an illness or a sickness. Uh, that's, that's a huge thing. That's like the biggest thing because the stigma really focuses on the idea that it's, mental illness is not the same as a physical illness. So uh, I'm going to say mental illness actually doesn't make any sense to me at all. The word, the word mental, the words mental illness don't make any sense. Like if we go on the assumption as medical science has that there's an issue in the brains of people like me who have depression, if we go on the assumption that somehow my brain is different because of that, why do we call it a mental illness? Why is it not a brain disease like Parkinson's is? And I think at the heart of the stigma is the idea that we called it a mental illness uh, and what, what stems from that. And plus, it's impossible to, to prove that you have this. So in my case, with depression and anxiety, uh, I can't show you any proof of that. It's not like I can show you a biopsy from a test where I could show you, um, you know, say uh, a blood test or an x-ray or an MRI. All you know is what I tell you. And we are all liable to be skeptical of somebody who tells us something that they cannot prove. So what's a mental illness? Mental illness is a physical disease, illness, sickness of the brain that is currently impossible to show except to talk about the results of the mental illness, which I'm happy to talk about as we go on. Perfect. Yeah, I think. And the second kind of question to that, too, is just for people who don't experience mental illness or don't experience anxiety or depression. How would you kind of describe the feeling of, of experiencing, for example, depression? Yeah, well, you have to take them sort of separately. Uh, and you just talked about the one or mentioned the one that I am most familiar with, and that is depression. Uh, I can answer your question in, say, 60 seconds. Give me 60 seconds. You start it. You got you, you got a clock? Got it. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go and I'm going to say, um, if you don't know what depression is, you have to assume that you will never know what it is unless you experience it. It's a totally 
foreign thing that you can never, ever, ever understand unless you have experienced it. Yet many illnesses, we all say, oh, okay, well, you know, in, in something like this, we say, well, I can imagine what that's like. You can't imagine what it's like. What is depression? Depression is A, the loss of the ability to experience joy. No matter what happens in your life, you can't feel joy, basic joy, simple joy. You cannot feel it. And therefore, when you wake up in the morning, you say something like, what's the point? What's the point of getting out of bed? Because I know nothing will feel good. Number two, loss of self-esteem. We all hear this voice in our heads telling us that we're no good and that whatever we're doing at that particular time, we are going to fail in. Number three, we all feel this sense of loneliness, like we are the only ones experiencing it. And number four, we all experience hopelessness, which is you know, so destructive. And that is the idea that, hey, what I feel now, I will feel for the rest of my life. And I'm going to touch uh, into a lot of the, those points that you made and, and kind of discuss it as we move forward here. But I wanted to ask you, kind of reflecting on your experiences in your own personal life, when did you realize for the first time that you were battling an illness called depression? Uh, I would say um, that's actually a really easy question for me to answer. If you ask me about anxiety, it would be more difficult because when I was five years old, uh, I see I, I, when I think back to when I was five, I can't remember feeling anxious. But when I think back to when I was, um, say, seven uh, and in grade two, I can remember being hit by this thing called anxiety. Um, I don't know if I was uh, if if when I was three years old, I was anxious. I don't know if a three-year-old knows anything about that. But for depression, without a doubt, for me, it was early on in 1998. The show that I hosted uh, was Off the Record. And so it was in our first season of Off the Record that I realized one day when the producer of the show, who was my buddy, asked me to go and screen a movie with him. Because when you have a guest on uh, a talk show, you're supposed to screen the movie that they're promoting. And in this case, it was a Vin Diesel movie. And I turned, I, I remember saying to Bob, uh, I can't go, you know, I have to do this, this and that. And when I hung up the phone, I thought to myself, why did I do that? Why would I say no? I have nothing else to do. Uh, and I started to visit my life over the previous six months. It was like I was doing a forensic evaluation of my life. And I started to realize that I had turned down many offers that I would typically never turn down. I started to realize that there were times when I was reclusive, when I was retreating, when I was trying to get away from people that I didn't typically want to get away from. And at that moment, I kind of put it all together and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm not the person that I was. And the person that I am, I do not want to be oh my gosh, I'm sick, right? Like I'm really sick and I know what it is. I'm depressed. I have this illness called depression. Uh, I haven't experienced anything that made me feel joyous in months. Uh, I hated everything that I had done professionally. I am really sick and really shocked by how bad depression was. It was like nothing I ever imagined. I talk a lot about self-stigma on my podcast, and I just wanted to respond to your to your answer by saying, you know, did you, I guess, did you have any self-stigma? Was this I didn't. No? Okay. Yeah. It, it's funny that you, not funny, uh, but it's um, because I just was, was talking about how I hated the work that I was doing, because one of the things, as I mentioned, that depression does to us is it robs us of our self-esteem. But 
I never hesitated to tell people. Like I remember when I first went to see a psychiatrist, when I came back, I, I, I told everyone that I was working with, hey, I just got a prescription for Prozac and God help me, but you know, I'm, I'm like so counting on this making a difference in my life. So I never felt uh, that sense of shame. I never hesitated to talk about it. I never felt weak because of it, uh, but I never spoke about it on television until uh, a decade later because I thought, why would I? Why would anyone care? People just gonna think, oh, you know, he's looking for our sympathy. He wants us to like him. So I never talked about it, not because I was ashamed or felt stigmatized, but because I didn't realize there was a value to it. Right. And you're someone obviously throughout your career who has overcome challenges with your depression in your life. And obviously, as you said, you've hosted a, a talk show before. Um, I have a question. Obviously, as someone who's, who, like yourself, who is so open about depression, I've heard you share many inspiring stories of overcoming battles in your past, although you mentioned it's an ongoing process. I'm wondering if I could, if you could share the story and meaning behind your tattoo and how you were able to overcome this difficult time in your life. So I write this on my arm because I give a lot of talks, uh, either virtually or in person. Uh, and I write it because I think it makes an important point. It says 112408YULMH5210400, which uh, in my code, very sophisticated, 112408, November the 24th, 2008, YUL is the airport code for Montreal, MH521 is Marriott Hotel Room 521, and 0400 is 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, and I have this on my arm because that was the lowest point of my mental illness life, my existence. Uh, I sat on the edge of the bed. I remember we were there because we were shooting off the record at the Grey Cup and it was in Montreal. And I remember uh, this was a year and a half for me of the lowest, deepest, darkest, imaginable hole of depression and the most intense anxiety I've ever experienced. And I was just so worn down by it. And I remember sitting on the edge of the bed at 4 a.m. saying, wow, you know what? If I had tried a whole bunch of different things and they had failed to make me better, and I was sitting here feeling the way I felt for a year and a half, I would have been a danger to myself because I was in so much pain and I was so exhausted from this battle. But you see, I had hope because I had been through it before. And each time I had been through it before, uh, I found a way out of the hole. But if I was hopeless at that point, uh, I realized, oh my gosh, you know, the idea of, of dying is way less scary than the idea of living and going on and with this battle that is so exhausting. Well, first of all, I want to say that, uh, you know, I, I think that it's amazing that you're able to kind of find that hope and come out of that, that dark place. It's, you know, we hear all the stories of a lot of people who, who can't find that hope or, or get out of that place. So um, I'm very happy that you were able to do that. And I just, based on what you, you were telling me, uh, given all you've learned about yourself and about mental illness over the years and that particular experience, what advice would you give to your younger self or other individuals, perhaps, when it comes to managing life with a mental illness or overcoming battles? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty easy. Uh, I would give myself the advice that, I mean, okay, take a few steps back. What what got me out of the deep, dark hole of depression in 1998, the first time? And the answer is medication. Uh, and I'm not an advocate for medication. Uh, I'm an advocate for having the attitude, I will do anything to get better. Everything is on the table, whether it's meds or electroconvulsive therapy or magnetic stimulation or any kind of talk therapy or ketamine or magic mushrooms. You have to be willing to do anything it takes to get better. And for me, it was medication. 
but I'm not here saying this is the only way to do it. I hate being on meds, but I have learned to love the thing I hate the least. I hate medication less than I hate the illness. So for me, it was medication. And then I went off medication and I relapsed and then went back on. And then I went off again and went back on. And then I went off again and went back on, each time relapsing. Uh, and the fifth time that I did that takes us to 2008. Uh, and I had, I had not gone back on medication for uh, well over a year, even though I was suffering so badly. So my advice to my younger self in 2008 would be, you idiot. You know, what are you doing? You have learned the lesson that this will not go away on its own. You know, if you felt sick for a year, and this is not for me, this is for others uh, based on my experience. If you felt sick every day when you woke up with the idea that you will not experience joy, that your life is tortured, you can pretty well be sure that tomorrow when you wake up, you will still feel that. So my advice to myself would be stop being such an idiot. You know, you made a mistake once and twice and three times and four times, like five times, really? So that would be uh, how I would talk to myself. My advice to others is that if, if, if you can say, like I could say in those cases, that I am no longer living the life that I want to live, that I'm living, existing, breathing, doing all those things, but I'm not really alive. If you can say that about your life, then you have to be able to say this. I will do anything to fight for my happiness. And that means any of those treatments that I mentioned, that if you don't find something that's going to make you feel better, then essentially you're giving up your life to your illness. And not everyone can. And people have treatment-resistant depression. Incredibly tragic. So heartbreaking when you talk to someone who says, yeah, I've tried 10 medications and I've tried ECT and magnetic stimulation and deep brain stimulation and um, you know, magic mushrooms and ketamine and nothing has worked. That's the most awful thing I can imagine. But it's that commitment to saying, I'll do anything to get better because no place is worse than where I am right now. I could say that multiple times in my life, that nothing that a treatment was gonna to do to me would make anything worse than where I was because I was at the bottom. Right, and I think definitely just in response to that, I think one of the most difficult things that I've, when I've spoke to people on the podcast is taking that initial first step of reaching out for help. And often I talk a lot about stigma on this podcast and how it can act as a barrier or, or um, allow people to feel almost unsafe asking for help. How do you, where do you believe uh, society, we are as a society in terms of stigma? And what do you suggest to people who are afraid of self-stigma or stigma from other people reaching out for support? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because self-stigma is, is really the most damaging. See, for me, I had no self-stigma, zero. I didn't, I didn't blame myself for my illness. I didn't feel that I brought it on. I didn't feel like I could will it away. I didn't think it was a weakness. I just thought I got sick, right? So I had no trouble reaching out for help. I was not in any way thinking, oh gosh, you know, I hope no one sees me in the waiting room because they're going to say, hey, hey, Michael, how you doing, man? Or hey, Landsberg, even worse than that, someone I didn't know asking me, hey, what's going on? I mean, it's kind of unusual to ask someone what's going on, why they're at the doctor, but it does happen. So I didn't feel any of that. 
Uh, but people do. And the self-stigma is way more damaging than the other stigma, which is other people and how they looked at you. You can only control one thing. Well, you can control two things. You control how you see yourself, which is training yourself, educating yourself. If you Google depression and you get, and I did this recently, five and a half billion hits within 0.47 seconds. If, if you see how predominant this is, and how many people experience this and how so many of us experience it the same way, you have to come to the conclusion that this is not made up in your head. You are one of millions and millions around the world that have this illness. So how are we doing with the stigma? I, I don't know. I think that's above my pay grade to know, but uh, I think we're doing a bit better. Uh, but I still feel like the majority of people would rather uh, would rather keep it silent, would rather go on suffering than make it known that they're battling a mental illness. And that is tragic. I mean, how many times do we have to hear about someone who either took their own lives or tried to take their own life? Uh, and the reaction of everyone, even the people closest to them, is, oh, my God. I had no idea, no idea. There were no warning signs. I mean, I tell people all the time, or parents all the time, you gotta to talk to your kids about mental illness and you gotta mention suicide. And if you go on the assumption that, hey, I know my kid, I love my kid, my kid loves me, therefore I would know what's happening if something was happening, you, you may be right, but you also may be wrong. And in many cases, the best parents and the best kids, um, you know, have this tragedy that happens in their family because, no one knew because people like me with this illness get really, really good at hiding it. Right. And you spoke about the importance of educating ourselves and learning more about what mental illness is. I'm wondering, what advice can you give to a friend who's supporting someone who's struggling with illness? Uh, that is, uh, I mean, that's one of the questions that um, whenever I give a talk, people ask, because it's a really hard question to answer. It's a really hard question to have useful advice. I mean, you can throw out lots of crap, but the problem is how much of that is functional? How much of it can be used? First of all, if you have a friend who you think has changed, that's almost always the giveaway um, that there's something going on, right? But, but people don't always show that. So then you got a problem of you know, deciphering it. But if you look at a friend and you say, ah, you know what, I, I know this person or a brother or a sister or anybody that you really care about and that you know well, there's almost always some signs that something has changed. And the best way to empower them to go for help is to bring it to their attention. The problem is that if you say to somebody, oh, you know, uh, you know, Jordan, you don't seem like you're, you don't seem like you're yourself. Are, are you okay? And you say, yeah, I'm fine. And I say, well, no, you know what? It, it seems like, you know, you lost a little bit of that jump in your step. No, I'm okay. Ah, you don't seem like you're very happy. Hey, hey, you know what? I'm sorry, we all can't be happy all the time. I mean, that's the kind of fight that all of us have with people that we care about sometimes who have a mental health change that's happened in them. And the best thing to do is be persistent, A, B, not care whether you become the villain in this conversation and C, to make it rhetorical. So if you're trying to help somebody that does not want help, you need to illustrate to them in the best possible way for them to realize that something is wrong. 
And I would do it by saying to you, if it was, if we were having, you know, this conversation, I would say, Jordan, you know what? Don't answer my question uh, because I know you're going to say, no, not me, but answer yourself. Just think about this. When was the last time something just basic in life brought you joy? When was the last time where, I, I, like, I'm not talking about something amazing because amazing things don't happen very often. But there's little things that we like, a TV show. For me, it's a sip of coffee. For others, it might be taking a dog for a walk. Like, it's not like you're screaming, oh my God, it's the greatest thing in the world. But you feel this, this sense of joy, which makes us human, which also makes us get out of bed in the morning, the hopes that that will happen. And if you have not felt that sense of joy, being really honest with yourself, for a year or two years or however long it is that I think that you have been struggling, then you owe it to yourself to go get help because that's an illness and that's you giving up your life to your illness. And every day you do that is a day you will never get back. It's not like God, if there's a God is gonna to come to you at the end of your life and say, hey, you know what? You gave up five years of your life to your illness, so I'll give it back to you and I'll see you in five years. You'll never get it back and nor can you ever try to get it back. But what you can do is remind yourself of what you were and go in search of being that person again. No, I think that's really good advice. And I found myself having a lot of conversations with my friends about uh, their behavior and how they were feeling. And obviously during the COVID pandemic, people have reflected on, on how happy they've been and, and mental health has become a conversation. And, and I'm curious, you know, how do you believe, I guess from your personal experience or maybe reflecting on society as a whole, how do you believe the COVID pandemic has influenced mental health? Oh, in a million different ways. I mean, in its most basic level, uh, it has taken people with some mental illnesses and made them worse. Uh, at one level, it has taken people who were mentally healthy before the pandemic, and it has made them somehow mentally ill. But it's also the vast majority of people have a reaction to it that's not a mental illness. It's a logical reaction by the healthy brain to something that bad has happened. So if you look back over the last two years and you say, hey, you know, like I'm feeling just I don't I don't feel the same way I did two years ago, you know, before the pandemic hit, you know, I'm worried about my future. I'm worried about my family. I'm worried about my dad getting sick, say, you know, like all of these things. That's not mental illness. That's a normal reaction to something bad in our lives. Important to acknowledge that depression and sadness are not the same things. Uh, you mentioned before we came on, you said, hey, I'm sorry about the loss of your dad. My dad dying three months ago makes me sad, but it doesn't make me depressed. I look back at what we've experienced for the past two years and how much we've all given up and just how tenuous our lives have become. And just like all of the things that the pandemic has brought upon us. And I say, hey, you know what? I, I find it sad. And you know what? I am anxious about the future, about this, you know, the new variant that's coming our way. And, you know, are we taking our masks off too soon? That makes me really anxious. But none of that is a mental illness. All of that is a natural reaction to a situation that's really difficult. Right. No, I think that's a great point. And I wanted kind of next to transition our conversation by talking about your initiative, Sick Not Week. And I really like that, that title. And I'm just kind of curious, I wanted to ask you, how did you come up with that name? And uh, how, yeah, how did that kind of finalize? 
okay, so 2008, that was, uh, you know, uh, 1124-08-YUL, MH5210400. In 2009, uh, when I was feeling better, because I went back on medication, uh, we had a guest on the show, Stefan Richer, who was a uh, two-time Stanley Cup champion, and I had read that he had battled depression in the 1990s. And I thought, oh, that'll make an interesting question. I wasn't thinking, oh my gosh, if he talks about this, other people's lives are going to be changed. So I went into the green room, asked him to come out, said, is it okay if I ask you about depression and he said I'd rather not talk about it so I said okay well I get that I'm, I, I certainly wouldn't want to you know give you pain but if you'll talk about it I'll talk about it and he said well what would you talk about and I told him my story and he said okay let's do it I had never spoken about this uh, in using any of the platforms that I had again because I thought there was really no value to it um, but I asked him and he gave me an answer uh, and then I said well you know what me too thank you for sharing that uh, me too I mean I never won a Stanley Cup but I do understand what it's like to have good things happen to you and not be able to feel the joy of it. Uh, and that was 2009. And that changed my life. Without a doubt, uh, I started getting emails, uh, most of them actually from men, which may have been the demographic of the show also. But I, uh, I, I just started to hear how empowered people were, hearing from two guys without shame and embarrassment and without sounding weak, talking about their mental illness. And it was jaw-dropping for me. It was like, oh my God, how did this happen? How, I, I had no idea that my simply telling of the story of my depression in 90 seconds tops would help somebody else in telling their own. And all these emails basically said the same thing. They all said, hey, Michael, watching you and Stefan Richer talk about depression without shame and embarrassment. It's the first time I've ever seen two men doing that. And because of that, I'm telling you something I've never told another human being. Like you, I battle depression. And now I feel like I can go and tell a doctor about it and go for help because you guys didn't seem ashamed. You didn't seem like losers. You didn't seem like your lives were over because of it. Uh, and that, that kind of taught me the value of it. So since that point on, I've been talking more and more about it. And one of the first speeches I gave was at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto to uh, uh, a group of young business people. I, I don't remember what the group was called. And I, this was like really early on for me in talking. And I said, you know, Nobody here is talking the way people talk, which is stigmified way. Like, I know you don't want to insult me or you're worried about me embarrassing you if you say, hey, I think mental illness is different than physical illness. I think that, you know, we need to suck it up. I know statistically more than half this country thinks that. So is no one willing to say, hey, you know what, Michael, I'm willing to say it. I believe that depression, what you're talking about, is a bad thing for sure, but I don't believe that it's in the category of cancer or diabetes or heart disease or lupus or anything else. And I said, oh, okay, well, thank you for saying that. Like one person actually did say that. And I said, I respect you for doing that, but here's how I would answer it. And I went through my answer. And at the end of my answer, I said, you know, I am sick, but I'm not weak. You know, like I fully admit, like, like people get mad at me over the sick, not weak. Why do you have to say you have a sickness? Well, how can it be two ways? If I want you to believe and understand that this is not self-inflicted, that somehow brain chemistry has changed in my brain, how, how can I not call that a sickness? Since when is there a stigma to all sicknesses? The only st stigma that exists is when you talk about mental illnesses. So I'm sick. 
but I'm not weak. And it kind of just uh, kind of just stuck. Uh, and here we are, that would have been probably 11 years ago, um, still using it. Wow. Yeah. And I want to ask, I mean, you've obviously had the opportunity to interview many athletes throughout your, throughout your talk show off the record. And I'm curious, you know, I, I speak with athletes on the podcast all the time and we talk about the term mental toughness and how that, that term is kind of slowly being removed from sports. Was the term mental toughness still being used? And, and did you find that perhaps maybe athletes were hiding some of their illnesses? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I first heard Mike Babcock was the first person who's, who said, mental toughness has nothing to do with mental illness. Um, Mike Babcock, this is like part of this journey that, that I'm on, this amazing journey that started with the Stefan Richer interview. Um, Mike Babcock, uh, I saw on call display at my desk doing off the record, it said Mike Babcock. And I picked up the phone and said, uh, Mike Babcock, what did I do to piss you off? Because Hockey coaches don't call guys like me. Normally, the only reason why they would do it is if they were pissed off. And he went, Michael? I said, yeah. He goes, it's Mike Babcock. And I said, yeah, I know. I already said your name. I mean, we have call display here. He said, I know you talk about mental illness. I saw the show that you did that was replayed over the summer about Bell Let's Talk Day, and I want to help. I said, oh, well, that's pretty amazing uh, because your voice could change people's opinion of mental illness. He said, you got to tell me what I got to do and I will do it. I want to lend my name and lend my reputation to mental illness. Uh, and that was kind of the beginning of, of our friendship from that context. But also um, that was the beginning of hearing from a hockey coach who said, you know, mental illness and mental toughness are not related. Right. And I know now that athletes are coming out and they're speaking publicly about their mental illnesses, um, players in the NHL, for example. I'm curious, where do you see the conversation around mental illness going in sports in the next 20 years, I guess? Well, I think the first thing is that, um, like, I know the Maple Leafs have a full-time liaison to a uh, to mental health professionals. So if Mitch Marner, and I'm not suggesting that he's the candidate for it, but just randomly giving a name, if Mitch Marner thinks, I don't feel good, you know, like I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not doing well, I'm really kind of down. Uh, he has somebody he can go to that by the description of the contract that this person has with MLSE is not allowed to share Mitch's conversation with the coach or the general manager or anyone in the organization. And that is a huge step towards making a difference. So um, if Mitch Marner says that, this person would say to them, okay, well, you know, let's get you in right away to see a psychiatrist who, you know, will work you up and figure out how you're doing and we'll go about treating, if there's something that needs to be treated, um, we'll go about treating you. That's the best situation, but that doesn't exist, you know, with, with necessarily a lot of teams. Uh, the Maple Leafs tend to be, and I'm a Leaf fan, but it has nothing to do with that. They're a very forward organization when it comes to um, talking about, uh, in particular, mental health, but other things like discrimination and sexism, and it's just a really good organization. The Vancouver Canucks, which uh, obviously you would, um, you would know the most about because you live in Vancouver, um, because they lost Rick Rippon, who was a player for the Canucks for a number of years, uh, left during the summer uh, and signed a contract with the Winnipeg Jets organization and took his own life after signing the contract uh, during the summer and before training camp. Uh, 
And because his buddy was Kevin Bieksa, the Canucks have been uh, probably the leaders publicly talking about mental illness. I think they have done an amazing job and should be you know, credited with taking something that was really awful. I mean, the death of Rick Rippett, what could be worse than that? Uh, and turning it into something that I can, without a doubt, say there's people alive today because of what they've done. But those are probably the exceptions to the rule. And, you know, if you're a star player, never an issue. Like, who's going to say if Austin Matthews came out and said, hey, by the way, I just started on medication. I have severe depression, but I've also got 54 goals. Uh, no one's going to care. No, no one's going to offer him one penny less. But I can tell you that Wade Belak, who was my buddy, who took his own life in 2011, uh, and he and I spoke about depression and treatment and uh, medication a million times, but he would not say it in the dressing room because he was afraid that when his contract was up, a general manager would say, well, you know, like there's a guy that could replace him. You know, if it's not Belak, it's this guy or this guy or this guy. Uh, and he was afraid that that meant that they would sort of err on the side of the guy without the mental illness. So I, I think that uh, players that do not have guaranteed futures will always be wary of sharing. Right. And I mean, to your point, I think big names like Carey Price, for example, who came out and spoke about a mental illness and, you know, he got a huge amount of support. So um, it's great to see. And I hope that, uh, you know, as a society, we can move forward in that direction. So I wanted to kind of conclude our conversation by kind of looking and reflecting upon your career and, and in media. And I wanted to ask people who struggle with mental illness, sometimes they believe that it can be a barrier to achieving their goals or happiness or life aspirations. How are you able to do it? And I guess what advice do you have to these people who truly believe that their illness will stop them from living a fulfilling life and achieving their goals? What advice do you have to these people? Well, I would say that if you, if you feel the way I have felt at different times in my life, I don't feel it nearly as poignantly now because I'm on medication, uh, but I still have bad days. But my bad days now are a four out of 10 as opposed to a zero. My bad days now allow me to go on. And while I feel kind of sort of miserable, I'm not dying. Um, so I would say that if you're feeling the way I did feel in 2008 and different times in my life in 1998, if you're feeling that way and you're worried about how your illness is going to impact your future, you have a right to worry about that because right now you haven't gotten treatment. So I would never have been able to do the job that I did year after year if I wouldn't have gone for help. What saved me and what gave me my career and what ultimately gave me joy in my life was going for treatment for my illness. So are you worried that, um, that your illness, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, is going to prevent you from doing all the things you want to do? Eh, it's, you should be worried about that. But you can deal with that but you got to treat the illness. And it all comes back to this one thing. You have to commit to the fight. You have to say to yourself, no matter what, I am going to keep fighting. You know, I may not win every day, but I am in the long run, I can say that um, my illness, I will fight to the end of my life. But my illness will not cause the end of my life. Uh, and to accomplish that, you need to keep keep fighting. And yeah, you know what, though, it's, it's not a matter of being so much a broadcaster. You know, people will say, oh, God, how tough was that, you know, to host a show for 
210 shows a year when for a whole year you were severely depressed. And I say, oh, it's tough. But what job isn't tough? What life isn't tough? If you're a stay at home mom or dad uh, and you have severe depression, your life's no more difficult than my life was hosting a talk show. Just different, right? It doesn't matter. Severe depression is equally difficult for all of us. Right. No, I think that's a great way to end it. And I know that uh, surrounding yourself with a support network is another big thing that people can do as well. People having being ha being able to speak to people and having people in your corner to support you is just as important as well. So um, with that, Michael, I want to thank you so much for your time today. And uh, it was really a great pleasure to speak to you. And, and thank you so much. Thank you. If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide, call the Canada Suicide Prevention Service at 1-833-456-4566 or text 45645. As well, through Wellness Together Canada, individuals of all ages in Canada or Canadians abroad can access supports ranging from self-assessment and peer support to free and confidential sessions with social workers, psychologists, and other professionals. Call one 866 585-0445 if you are an adult, or one 668 6810 if you are a youth. If you or someone you know is struggling or in a crisis in the United States of America, help is also available. Call or text 988 or chat 988lifeline.org. You can also reach Crisis Text Line by texting MHA to 74 1741. That is 741741. You can also call 1 800 985 5990 or text Talk With Us to 66746 at the SAM HSA Disaster Distress Helpline. Trained crisis workers will listen to you and direct you to the resources you need.